Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible as we come to God's Word together this morning and turn to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. We continue our series this summer through a part of the book of Psalms, 56 through 69. Those are the Psalms that we're walking through together this summer, and today we come to Psalm 62. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs, and so you can reach under a chair in front of you and take a Bible and follow along, and I hope you'll do that. And if you do that, and if you're using one of those blue Bibles, you can find our psalm on page 479, 479. Anne Steele was a hymn writer who lived about 300 years ago. Anne experienced many tragedies in the early years of her life. When she was three years old, her mother died. When she was still a child, she had an accident and there was an injury that resulted in her being unable to walk for the rest of her life. And then on the day before her wedding, her fiancé was drowned in a river. All of these things happened to Anne before she was 21 years old. She began and continued to write hymns to God. And I love these words that she wrote so many years ago, speaking to God. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring sweet relief for every pain I feel. I think of this hymn in many ways because in Psalm 62, David refers to God twice explicitly as his refuge and the refuge of God's people. And Anne, in spite of all that she experienced in those early years of her life, thought of God as her dear refuge. Her dear refuge. Is God your refuge? If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, then certainly you would say yes this morning. Most of us would say, as David says at the end of verse 7, my refuge is God. But I read something this week that I thought was helpful to help us really think seriously about whether God is our refuge just in name or actually in reality. This writer said this, Into what are you funneling all of your heart's anxieties? What are you banking on? What do you spend extra money on? What do you daydream about. The answer to these questions reveals our real refuge. Let's look at Psalm 62 and let me read through it and you follow along as we begin to look at this psalm together this morning. Psalm 62, the heading tells us it's a psalm of David as have all of the psalms that we've been looking at so far this summer. For God alone My soul waits in silence 
From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. In this psalm, David speaks. For example, in verses 1 and 2, David speaks about his soul and God's, and his God, rather. In verses 3 and 4, David speaks to and about his enemies. In verses 5 through 7, David speaks to his soul. In verses 8 through 10, David speaks to his people. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, David speaks about and to his God. Let's look together at verses 1 and 2, where we see that David speaks about his soul and his God. In verse 1, he speaks about his soul. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse 2, he speaks about his God. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Essentially, in these first two verses of this psalm, David is saying this, that his soul is waiting in silence on God alone. And so, he says... At the end of verse 2, I will not be greatly shaken. One of the things that stands out in this psalm, and we see it here in the first two verses, is the emphasis is on God and God alone. Look at it again, verse 1. Notice the words, God alone. 
And then look in verse 2. He alone. Then later in verses 5 and 6, we'll see something very similar. Again in verse 5, God alone. And in verse 6, He only. David was saying essentially this, that he had all that he needed because he had God. That he had all that he needed in God both to survive and to thrive. And so David didn't trust fully in anything else. He trusted fully and solely in God. The great hymn says it this way, Thou and Thou only first in my heart. That's what David is saying here. God, you are first and only you are first in my heart. You are the source of my salvation. Notice he says in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. I can't help but hear that and think about the verse in Isaiah that says this, They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. David says his soul is waiting, trusting, hoping in God alone. And here he says he is doing so in silence. In silence. Silence is important. We need more of it. The truth is, though, when we are silent, our mind is not, right? We're thinking. And so at times we need to quiet not only ourselves in terms of our voice and literally speaking, literally being silent, sometimes we need to find a way with God's help to silence our minds because quite often our minds will say things that are not good for us to hear and to believe here, silence represents also evidence of confidence in God. As we'll see in just a minute, he's facing enemies that are formidable and that are fierce, who are desiring to kill him. And David is trusting in God and God alone. And so his silence, not only outwardly but inwardly, reflects his confidence and the solace he finds in God. David according to these first verses, had a calm and a quiet faith. He had a calm and a quiet faith. And this is something that those of us who name Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, this is something we should aspire to, to have this kind of quiet and calm faith in the midst of adversity. This reminds me of Jesus when he was standing trial Matthew 27 says this, But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was amazed. When people see... Quiet and calm confidence rooted in God, 
It's amazing. It's unique, and God intends for us to live in such faith. And all of us have a ways to go, right? But all of us desire, if we know Jesus and if we trust Him, we desire to live in such a way that brings glory to God. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we do that is to trust Him. To quietly trust Him in the midst of circumstances that no one else could be quiet about or be calm in. So David speaks about his soul and his God, verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, David speaks to and about his enemies. Now, we're going to begin to see here what he was facing. Verse 3, how long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering He's talking to his enemies. And then in verse 4, he's talking about his enemies. Listen to what he says here. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They were two-faced. They pretended to be with him, but they weren't. They hated him, and they attacked him, and had been doing so for a long time. That's why he says at the beginning of 3, how long will you attack a man to batter him? He's essentially saying this has gone on far too long already. Now, I want you to think about yourself as you think about David at this particular point in the psalm. Have you ever felt like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? Like you were fragile and you were about to collapse. And on top of that, have you also known that there were those who had been attacking you and battering you for a long, a very long time, who pretended to be on your side and to be your friend, but inwardly they cursed you? Now, probably none of us have had exactly this situation, but all of us have had situations that could be somewhat described as similar to what David is experiencing as he writes Psalm 62. This kind of situation and other similar situations often bring desperation. They make us desperate. We don't know what to do. We have enemies who hate us and who desire to harm us, and we're desperate. We're facing what feels like a crisis in our lives and we don't know what to do. But I want you to understand something this morning. Desperation can be a means of grace. Desperation can be a means of grace. Quite often God allows His children to find themselves in desperate circumstances, in desperate and and difficult crisis in their lives because... That will often be the means through which God will be gracious to us. We will see our need for Him. We will turn to Him more urgently, more passionately, more sincerely maybe than we normally do and we'll cry out to Him. Desperation can be a means of grace. 
And there are two particular ways that I think desperation often is a means of grace in the lives of those who are believers, and they are these. Desperation, number one, can reveal what we trust. Sometimes we say we trust God, we say God is our refuge, but we find ourselves in a crisis. We find ourselves facing what looks like a catastrophe. And sometimes we learn the hard way what we really are looking to for our refuge and what we are trusting in. Desperation can reveal what we trust and also teach us to trust God. Desperation can also teach us to trust God. And that's what we need to do. We need to wait upon Him and Him alone. We need to trust in Him and Him alone. So David speaks to and about his enemies, and we learn some things about what he was facing. And then in verses 5 through 7, David speaks to his soul. So David is addressing this psalm to lots of different addressees. And now he's talking to himself, right? In verses 5 through 7, David is talking to his soul, which means he's talking to himself. By the way, we all do that. We all do that, but there's a huge difference between what we normally say to ourselves and what we should be saying to ourselves in light of what we see here in these verses. Look at verses 5 through 7. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. Now, at the beginning of the psalm, he said his soul was waiting on God in silence. Now he says to his soul, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Why? Because just because we experience calm and confidence doesn't mean that it's permanent. Our hearts have a tendency to fear, and sometimes we have to talk to our heart, and we have to tell our heart what it believes and what it knows. As Christians, we know who God is and what God has done for us, and we need to speak to our soul. Verse 6, he, he says to his soul as he continues, he, God, only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. What an incredibly important thing for us to say to ourselves regularly. We need to reinforce this kind of confidence by reminding ourselves of who God is. Notice all of the pronouns my in these verses. Verse 5, my hope. Verse 6, my rock. He's talking about God. Verse 6, my salvation. Again, verse 6, my fortress. Verse 7, my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock. My refuge is God. It's one thing to know that God is all of these things, but it's another thing to remember and to live in the reality that He is these things to me. He is these things for me, especially when we're afraid, when we're anxious. On God, verse 7 says, rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. It's the beginning of verse 7 that I've used as the title for the message this morning. 
because I really want us to focus on those words. But before we come to those words, let me just remind you of something Paul Tripp said, and it goes back to something I mentioned earlier. Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And that's what David is doing here. He is talking to himself, and he's telling himself the right things. He's telling himself who God is to him personally and for him, and who only God is to him and for him personally. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Now, what David probably had in mind primarily was being saved physically from his enemies who were trying to take his life. And what he probably was thinking about immediately when he says he is not only the one who my salvation rests on, but my glory rests on, he was probably thinking about becoming king as he had been told he would by Samuel the prophet. But here's what's amazing. Though David might not have seen the length of what he was talking about in terms of its fulfillment, those of us who have the New Testament can. Look at it again, the beginning of verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. God, in Christ is the one upon whom rests our salvation and our glory. Remember when Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 had healed a, a, a lame man and chapter 3 had healed a lame man and then they were brought in and they were interrogated and they were warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They began to respond, and as they continued in their response, they said this. Basically, they said, no, we're not going to do that. But they said this toward the end, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in Jesus only. For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. This is the only way we can be saved eternally. This is the only way we can have eternal salvation is in this name, through this name, because of Jesus Christ and what he did. Because he lived a life without sin, because he died a death for sin, for us, and because he rose from the dead conquering death for all of eternity, for those who trust in him, that's how we can be saved. That's how we have salvation in all of its fullness. David refers to salvation here probably again, speaking primarily about being saved from these enemies who were physically trying to take his life. But it points to a greater salvation. And then I think of glory here. Glory. Glory is the ultimate outcome of our salvation. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Bible says salvation ends in glorification. 
and we experience the glory of God and we enjoy the glory of God and we reflect throughout all of eternity the glory of God. This is something that I'm convinced evangelical Christians don't think enough about or understand fully. C.S. Lewis said something once that I think helps us begin to think a little better about what's being said in the New Testament particularly when it talks about the creation being set free from its bondage to corruption and obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The children of God are going to be glorified. Here's what Lewis says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as which you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. Do you hear what he's saying? He uses a little language that may sound strange to you, but what he's saying is this. One day, those who believe are going to be glorified and those who don't are going to be horrifying. Everybody is destined to one of those two ends and will end up in one of those two places based upon faith. Faith. Trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're not going to become fully like God, obviously. But we are those who were made from the beginning in the image of God. And God will transform us and make us into what He intended for us to be, ultimately and forever. And He says here, it will be not only us, think about this, not only will we be set free, from the bondage to corruption, but all of creation will be. Things in this creation wear down and wear out, including us, right? Our bodies. As we get older, it becomes obvious that we are wearing down and that we are wearing out. I heard a, a teacher talk about how we were in bondage to corruption. He talked about taking a shower one morning and watching the hairs that he was losing from his head go down the drain. Listen, folks, we're going to be glorified. Do I understand all that that means? No. But I think it probably means more than most of us have ever thought of. The New Testament uses this kind of language. We are going to reign with Christ. It talks about crowns. And again, I don't know if that's to be interpreted as literal crowns, but I do think it obviously points to something that is trying to help us understand something. We are going to become as much like God in the end, if we've trusted in Jesus, as any created, fallen, repentant, redeemed human can. We are going to be glorified. And here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. There's a lot of things here that you could take with you, but let me just give you this as a challenge. Write down somewhere 
and keep it with you this week, the beginning of verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Write that on something and keep it with you this week and use it to talk to yourself. Remind yourself of that. On God rests my salvation and my glory. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Him as your Savior, if you're following Him as your Lord, you can say this. And for those of you here this morning who are not sure about where you stand in relationship to Christ, turn from your sin, desiring to follow Christ and trusting in Christ alone. The psalm emphasizes God alone. The New Testament emphasizes that faith is to be in Christ alone. Why? Because Christ is God in human flesh. He is our only hope. He is the only source of our salvation. Then in verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to start moving quickly, David speaks to his people. Notice this, he speaks to his soul, and then he speaks to his people. This is a good example for all of us. Verse 8, trust him, he says, at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Notice, David exhorts his soul and then he exhorts his people, God's people. And we need to do the same. We need to remind ourselves... And we need to remind one another to trust God and to pour out our souls to Him. What does that mean? I think it means what we talked about last week, passionate prayer. How often do you pour out your soul to God? Your doubts, your questions, your fears, your hopes... How often do you pour out your soul to God? That's at the heart of what it means to really trust God. We need to remind ourselves and one another to trust God and to pour out our hearts to God. And we need to remind ourselves and to remind one another to trust, to not trust in anyone or anything but God. God. And notice there are two things here particularly that he talks about that human beings are tempted to trust instead of God. The first one is this, man, don't, he says essentially, don't trust in man. Verse 9, it doesn't matter if they're of low estate or high estate. All human beings are lightweights, is what he's saying. They can't really help you. Trust in God. Don't trust in man. And then in verse 10, he says there's something else we shouldn't trust in. We shouldn't trust in money. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in money. Those are the two things we are most often tempted to trust in. He says, verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Don't extort people in order to get money that you think might help solve your problem, get you out of this problem you're in. Set no vain hopes on robbery. 
Now, those are two sinful ways that we can acquire more money. But then he goes on to say, if riches increase, which I think takes it broader, and he's saying, even if it's not through sinful means that you acquire more money that you may be trusting in, even if it comes rightly to you, don't set your heart on them, that is, on riches. Don't set your heart on riches. You heard 1 Timothy 6 read earlier along these lines. Listen to Proverbs 11.28, how it begins. Whoever trusts in riches will fall. Whoever trusts in riches will fall. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in money. And Sometimes when we face crisis, we realize how easy it is for us to turn to other people and to hope that we could acquire more so that we could work things out in that way. Trust in God. This doesn't mean we don't act in a way that's responsible, but it means we don't trust. We don't trust in what we can do or what somebody else could do or what money we think might be able to do. We trust in God alone. And then finally, David speaks about and to his God in verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken twice, have I heard this, that power belongs To God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Now, when he says here, God has spoken, and then he says twice, what he's saying essentially is this God has revealed this to me, and he's reinforced this in my life. So, this is probably pretty significant. Notice what he says here power belongs to. To God. That's what David says about God. Power belongs to God. Man and money don't really have power. And the only power that they have is what God allows them to have. God is the one who actually has all power. It all belongs to him. And then notice what he says to God, verse 12, And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So keep those two together. Power belongs to God. Steadfast love belongs to God. And that term that's used there, we've talked about it before, is a term referring to covenant love. The love that God has for those who are in covenant with Him, who are His people. Steadfast love, God's loyal love. It comes to all of us who put our hope in the name of Jesus. And then finally, notice what he says at the end of verse 12. You, referring to God, will render to man according to his work. Now, what does that mean? That God will render to man according to his work. Does it mean that we're saved by works? No. Does it mean we're saved by faith and works? No. It means we're saved by faith that works. We're saved by faith alone, by God alone, But the faith that saves is never alone. It changes us when we truly believe. On Judgment Day, God will use the deeds, the work of believers and unbelievers to demonstrate those who did and those who didn't have true faith in Jesus Christ. Those without saving faith in Christ will endure suffering according to their works, but because of their unbelief, 
Those with saving faith in Jesus Christ will enjoy glory according to their works, but because of their faith. Do you hear the distinction there? According to their work, but because of their faith. On God, he says, rest my salvation and glory. Two quick questions and then we're going to sing. Is God the one you look to? Is God the one you gaze upon? Is He the focus of your faith? The sole focus of your faith? We're going to close with a song that's a prayer. For God to be our vision, the one that we focus on, the one that we trust in. And if you're here this morning, I would invite you to trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. And if you've trusted in Christ, continue to look to Him and to Him alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this psalm. Thank You for David's life and for how so much we have before us that came from his life and all of the things we can learn from that. Father, help us to trust in the one who is called the son of David in the New Testament, the one who is a descendant of David, who will reign forever as king. And I pray today that there would be faith among those who have not yet genuinely trusted in Jesus and turned from their sins. And that those who have, that we would be motivated to serve him and trust him and bring glory to him by quietly trusting in the midst of crisis. God, we want you to be the one we focus on, the one that we look to. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's